right, thank you, Anderson. I don't know if you were watching the town hall, but Jim Comey just said on CNN he still believes it is possible Russia has something on this president. And then he dropped this bomb. I think it's up to 800 former uh, federal prosecutors who've worked in both Republican and Democratic administrations who have signed a statement saying that Mueller's findings would have produced obstruction charges against President Trump if he weren't president. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. No doubt. No doubt. That's right. The former FBI director just accused this president of a crime and also of potentially being compromised by Russia. And I haven't even gotten yet to what he said about Attorney General Bill Barr and Deputy AG Rod Rosenstein. Now, this is definitely going to make waves in the media and in political circles and certainly rankle the president. But can Mr. Comey substantiate the claims? We're going to get into that with people who have dug deep on the facts here. And we have a Democratic senator here who has a big hand in what happens next. His reaction to Comey and why Senator Richard Blumenthal thinks the president's son should go to jail if he doesn't show to testify. Let's open this up with Cuomo's court. We have Garrett Graff and Asha Rangappa. Thanks to both of you. So, Asha, the idea of Comey sitting there didn't even think in response to Anderson's question. Oh, yeah, if he wasn't president, obstruction. Significance. Well, I think he's speaking as a former prosecutor. As Anderson mentioned, we now have over 800 former prosecutors who have said the same thing. And I think when you look at the Mueller report and the fact that Mueller went through 10 potential counts, element by element, uh, listing it out, and Comey pointed out two particular instances, um, and not including his own firing, by the way. One was uh, asking McGahn to basically get rid of the special counsel, and the other was to try to limit the scope of the Russia investigation to future investigations. Mm. So, you know, I think he was actually being quite conservative by saying there was two in particular, even though the report suggests that there could be as many as eight counts that have substantial evidence that would substantiate obstruction of justice. I also think that he made it clear that the American public isn't aware or doesn't uh, fully understand that the evidence laid out in Mueller's report is potentially for future prosecutors to be able to prosecute Trump after he leaves office. Mm. Mel, do we have the uh, sound of the president yet about the uh, just in this context, uh, because of what I want to set up in terms of conversation, I want you to hear what the president of the United States said today about the Mueller report. The Mueller report came out. That's the Bible. The Mueller report came out and they said he did nothing wrong. Now, he's talking about his son. All right, let's put that to the side. We're going to deal with that later in the show. We have Senator Blumenthal here to talk about the subpoena in one of the Senate committees. Garrett, the Trump, uh, the Trump line there is from the president. The Mueller report is the Bible. Now, I see those as haunting words. Uh, Comey tees up an absolute need to hear from Mueller. We have to hear if Mr. Mueller shares the analysis of Jim Comey. Do you agree on the significance of that? And what do you think we we'll, would hear from Mueller? Yeah, and to add to what Asha was saying, I think one of the, you know, we think of Jim Comey today as the former FBI director, but he spent most of his career on the federal prosecutor side. Remember, he was a federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia, where uh, Paul Manafort was tried. He was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, mm -hmm. where 
Uh, many of these Trump cases are now being handled. And he was the deputy attorney general who sat in Rod Rosenstein's chair before Rod. And so I think that, you know, we have to take his word and his weight here seriously. Um, and and it, he's not out of line, as Asha says. I mean, this is well within uh, the bounds of what most serious federal prosecutors have said over the last couple of weeks since the Mueller report came out. Right. Um, but that's why Mueller becomes what, so important, Garrett, because he's the exactly. one who did the digging here. And he's the one who, let's be honest, he left it undecided and confusing. And he needs to clarify it. Uh, it, yes, uh, but I, and I think actually Comey was very generous in the way that he laid this out in the town hall, that, that Mueller left it confusing for a specific reason, was uh, that he felt that he had been barred mm. by the Justice Department from indicting the president and that he felt it was unfair to make criminal allegations uh, short of something that the president could right. be tried on. Right. I hear, he I hear you on that, but we have to hear yeah. it. We have to hear Mueller articulate Absolutely. what the division was on the team, how it is that Mr. Barr and Mr. Rosenstein found it such an easy case uh, to render a decision on when Mueller could not. We need to hear it. Now, the other allegation tonight we got to get into. Let's listen to this. It wasn't just about obstruction. It was about possible compromise of our president. Do you think the Russians have leverage over President Trump? I don't know the answer to that. You think it's possible? Yes. Now, why does he keep saying that? I know people want to play this as new tonight. It isn't. He said it before. The Mueller report was very clear in that. I know there are redactions, but it's only it's less than 10 percent of the whole report. And we get the straight sense from Mr. Mueller that no criminal conspiracy, Asha, no proof of compromise. Why would Comey say this knowing the heft that it has when he says it? Yeah, so Comey actually explained this, that the counterintelligence part of the investigation remained with the FBI. Mueller's report actually notes this uh, early on in this report. So he was not overseeing the, the counterintelligence part. He was overseeing the criminal probe, and his report reflects what he found in terms of evidence that may or may not be sufficient to sustain criminal charges. What Comey was basically saying is that there is other evidence that could be collected on the counterintelligence side that may not necessarily be relevant to particular criminal charges, but that could relate to whether and how people might have been targeted, assessed, developed, um, or even compromised to act on Russian interests. Um, I also think that it was noteworthy that he clarified, and I think this is so important, that the portion of the dossier, which he said was unverified, related specifically to the part about um, Trump's private behavior with, you know, potential women in Russia, not necessarily to the entire dossier, which he said was actively being corroborated and was actually consistent with many other pieces of intelligence that they were getting at the time um, in, in late December 2016. I think that's so important because it's such a basis of a lot of misinformation that's out there. All right, look, you know, I give you the benefit of the analysis, but Garrett, my point is they don't have any proof. And if there were proof in this other thing, the idea of the way Asha puts it is clever. But the idea of, well, there is other evidence that could possibly be collected. Yeah, but you didn't. You don't have it. And this is a, the second time, at least that I've heard Comey say, uh, Garrett, about the president of the United States, that he could be compromised. It's possible. But he doesn't have any proof. At what point do you have to put up a shut up on something like this? Well, but I think he was making a different point than he made last year. Last year's question was in specific regard to the tapes, where Comey was saying, 
it's possible they exist. Comey's point tonight, I think, was of a broader one, which is it's possible that Russia does have leverage over the president. And we get very caught up in this question of the salacious tapes without really considering the much more obvious opportunities for leverage that the president could have uh, in regards to Russia in terms of the business dealings. That we know, for instance, that the president was engaged right. in trying to build Trump Tower Moscow during the course of this campaign. Right. We don't really have a good understanding of where the president's money is coming from, uh, in part because the president has made it so hard up to, uh, you know, within the last couple of days in terms of turning over documents. Right, and we hear it, and that's what the threads are that lead to Deutsche Bank. Why were they the ones who lent them so much money? They have oligarch money that flows through there. We'll see if they turn over the documents, what they yield. Asha, my point is this. I'm not knocking your analysis. It's spot on. That's why I love having you on the show. My point is, at a certain point, when you overreach in the expectation of what could be, and it's not delivered on, it actually emboldens the other side in the counterargument that you have nothing. You've raised dangerous speculation. You pretend that the president might be connected to Russia. You pose these uh, enticing questions. But the answers never come out the way you say. That's what I'm asking. Like, at what point does it have to be delivered on or let go? I think it has to be delivered on. And I think this is why the uh, Intelligence Committee, the House Intelligence Committee, has actually requested a briefing on the counterintelligence portion of mm. the investigation. This is what we have representatives in Congress for. The counterintelligence portion is top secret. It's classified. It contains sensitive se uh, methods and sources, intelligence from our allies. It cannot be released to the public. But that's why we have representatives who are in entrusted with oversight to be able to look at that investigation. And I think through them, we can get some of these answers and say, you know, was there was a counterintelligence investigation on the president of the United States that suggests that there was at least a concern that he might be compromised. Whatever happened with that? Was that yeah. ever resolved? Is it an ongoing national security threat? What are we doing about it? Fair point. And good thing I have the senator here. I'm going to ask him about what's happening on that front because now it looms a little bit larger. Now, one other thing that Comey said tonight that is worthy uh, of a second look. Listen to this. What do you think of the way Attorney General Barr has behaved? And I think he acted in a way that's less than honorable in the way he described it in writing and described it during a press conference and continues to talk as if he's the president's lawyer. That is not the attorney general's job. Less than honorable. Garrett Graff, impact. Uh, big. And I think he goes on to say as part of that answer that he feels that Barr did not live up to the Justice Department standard of a duty of candor, that he was giving narrow legalistic answers, not respective of what the attorney general should be saying. And I think that uh, that comment hits home, as does the one where uh, he went after Rod Rosenstein's character and said that he is a man of not sterling character, of not strong character. Um, you know, that that should mean something. Right. It also could mean that Comey's still upset that Rod Rosenstein took it out of him in that letter about why he should be fired. But nonetheless, when you're a former FBI director who was in deep in this situation as he was, these words are going to resonate. Garrett Graff, Asha Rangappa, thank you both. Important to have you tonight. Thank you. Jim Comey, he just said he thinks the DOJ should take a hard look at whether to charge the president when he's out of office. We have a top Democrat, Senator Richard Blumenthal. What does he think about Comey's arguments tonight? What does he think the path is forward for the president and for his son? Next. 
2020 is going to be a big year. Obviously, it's the re-election effort for the president. It could also be the last year before this president could face criminal charges. That's in the opinion of the former FBI director, Jim Comey. He was just minutes ago in a CNN town hall dropping bombs like this. Do you think he should be charged when he's out of office? I think based on what Mueller has shown. Well, I think the Justice Department will have to take a serious look at that. Whether it's a wise thing to do to a former president, I don't know. That's a harder question, a much bigger question than the facts of the case. This, as the president and his namesake, are under fire for multiple subpoenas related to the Mueller report, which the president called today the Bible on what happened during Russian interference. Let's bring in Democratic senator and member of the Judiciary Committee, Richard Blumenthal. Senator, good to have you. That may be the first thing on Russian interference that you agree with the president on, that the Mueller report should be regarded as the Bible. Now, in terms of the word of truth, what rang true for you and what Jim Comey said tonight? Well, first, I want to see the whole Bible. We've seen a redacted copy of it. And what rang true to me in those points that Jim Comey made so powerfully is, number one, Vladimir Putin succeeded beyond his wildest expectations in interfering with our democracy in 2016. And number two, that the president of the United States would be prosecuted for obstruction of justice, but for his being in that position. In other words, but for the 20-year-old Office of Legal Counsel memorandum that says a sitting president cannot be indicted. I was one of the former prosecutors, by the way, who signed that letter that Jim Comey just supported. Right. I saw your name on there. Why would Comey be more believable to you than Attorney General Barr and Deputy AG Rosenstein in their conclusion that, no, we've looked at the evidence. You couldn't make a case here beyond a reasonable doubt. Bill Barr and uh, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein are acting as the president's defense counsel. They are really distorting and warping the Bible, the Mueller report, in the interests of the president. If you look at the Mueller report itself, there are 10 episodes. Four of them establish conclusively the elements of obstruction an act that interferes with an ongoing proceeding, the connection to the ongoing proceeding, and corrupt intent. So, If it were me, but when it's a president, it's a complicated analysis. Let's take out of it whether or not you can indict a sitting one and the legal guidance. Let's just take it out for a second. The idea that I have control over the proceeding as president complicates the analysis, and that unless you can show corrupt intent, that I was doing something I'm allowed to do anyway, but I was doing it, uh, with malice, basically, and I was doing it to serve myself and not the right interests. It's hard to make that case, isn't it? Obstruction of justice and any criminal case is hard to prove when there has to be evidence of intent. Sometimes it's documents, sometimes it's conversations, but you need that mens rea as the... The mental thing, the mental the, component. The mental component that constitutes corrupt intent. Absolutely right. But in this instance, there is a plethora of evidence about what the president was doing and why he was doing it. And that's why I agree with Jim Comey and the more than 700 other prosecutors who said the president would be charged. Now, is it a wise thing to do? That's the other question that Jim Comey confronted Mm. in the wake of the Watergate scandal. Then President Ford concluded that charging former President Nixon, was not a wise thing to do. He gave him a pardon. And 
Gerald Ford had to live with the consequences of it because the American people really want justice and they want transparency, that whole Mueller report. Mueller didn't say what Jim Comey or what you say. He could have. He said something else. Obviously, we all want to hear from Mr. Mueller. We want him to explain it because he could have said what you just said. He didn't. Uh, He said, can't say that he did it. Not that I'm not allowed to, but that in looking at the evidence, can't say he did it and can't say that I can exonerate him, which is a weird word for a prosecutor to use. You guys aren't in the business in your past life of finding me innocent. You are in the business of deciding whether or not you can charge me and find me beyond a reasonable doubt. Why do you think he said it the way he did? That's what I want to know from Mueller himself rather than speculate on what went through his mind. And I want to hear from his team. I want to hear from Don McGahn and a variety of others who would have knowledge and were interviewed or taken before the grand jury by Bob Mueller and the full evidence and findings. But here's what I know for sure, and that is that Bob Mueller also said in that report that if he could have exonerated he would have. the president, he would have. Right. And that's very telling. And we may see, as Jim Comey said tonight, the Department of Justice taking another look at Donald Trump after he leaves office. Not with this AG. Not with There'll the, be not, another AG after he leaves office. Not with this AG. Now, uh, uh, two more questions. One, on Don Jr., these are heavy things that you want to talk to Mueller about. I understand your interest as an extension of oversight. I don't see that as overreach. Not yet. But on him, assuming it's the discrepancies between what he said to you guys and what's in the Mueller report about whom he may have told about the Trump Tower meeting and what he knew about the Moscow deal, he said he, that's the best of his recollection in terms of who he told. Now, you know that's a magic word in the law. He said, to the best of my recollection, I only told Jared Manafort, who were the two guys who were with me at the meeting. Even if Rick Gates is right and he told other people, he said that was his best recollection at the time. Why drag him back in and make all of this drama about it if he's just going to say, yeah, that's what I remembered at the time, Senator. Yeah, now you tell me this. Yeah, now I remember that. Yeah, I told them too. So what? His recollection has to be tested. That's what prosecutors do. That's what investigators do. When he says he has no recollection and there are more than 140 instances of contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russians during the campaign or shortly afterward, He has to be asked for the sake of our country because Vladimir Putin succeeded beyond his wildest expectations in interfering with our elections. What was the polling data that was provided to Konstantin Klimnik Klimnik by Paul Manafort? Why was it provided? Why did you message WikiLeaks about the Hillary Clinton? I get those questions, but Trump Jr. can't help you on that stuff. He can help us on a lot of them. Really? He has knowledge about his own messaging to WikiLeaks. He may know why Roger Stone was directed to be in contact with Julian Assange. He certainly knows about the meeting at Trump Towers that he attended. He should know about the negotiations on Trump Tower of Moscow, which might have compromised the president because he denied those negotiations going on well after he denied them. So he is a central witness in preventing the Russians from continuing their attack again. And I think if the American people take away nothing else from tonight, they should be stirred and chilled by Jim Comey's words 
the Russians are going to do it again. Well, that leads us to the conclusion that you guys are spending a lot of time getting to the truth of who you think lied to you and what the campaign did and didn't do. But what about fixing and hardening the election process? You know, what about finding ways to make it less likely it happens again? We seem to get like short shrift on that part of it, Senator. And you are absolutely right. The very significant thing about Richard Burr's decision to subpoena Donald Trump Jr. is it is a glimmer of bipartisan hope directed in this counterintelligence investigation. I'm not on that committee, but they are looking into what we can do to prevent another Russian attack. Part of it has to be to harden our election machinery. I think it is more susceptible to interference than Jim Comey may have indicated tonight. But also, if the president of the United States denies that it happened, as he did on the stage of Helsinki, if he chooses to believe Vladimir Putin over our unanimous intelligence community saying the Russians did it. And if he is, a, is averse to anybody even talking in his presence about it because he regards it as a challenge to the legitimacy of his win, that's what has been reported, then we are going to find resisting that attack very, very difficult. I hope there'll be bipartisan agreement that we need to harden this election machinery. Well, the first effort from Klobuchar and Langford in the Senate was rebuffed by the White House, and that was just to provide paper backup to the elections. Uh, so the, it hasn't been warmly embraced to this point. Maybe it'll get better going forward when the American people hear more in some hearings about how bad it is. Well, significantly, uh, I have introduced a bill with the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham, mm -hmm. a couple of bills that are directed exactly at this effort, and I really do hope we'll have some bipartisan agreement. Senator, thank you very much. One thank of many you. conversations to come, I'm sure. Thank, thank you, you, sir. All right, so listen, there is a lot going on in Washington, but I want to turn to something I can't believe is still not being addressed. You want to know why we don't do anything about school shootings? I know we have all the feels, right? And one of these, the pain is real for us, even if we don't directly experience it. But you're not going to like the answer. I have someone who knows the truth. He fought for change and he lost in his state as governor. And he knows why he lost. And you need to hear it. Next. Run, hide, fight. That's what we're teaching our kids now. We're leaving it up to them to deal with the school shootings. That's where we are. The new norm in the wake of this rash. We've had a dozen or so, only 19 weeks in. People would spend more time parsing what should qualify as a shooting than dealing with stopping the shootings. Just think about that. It's the latest one in Colorado, just a few miles from Columbine. Time and again, there are calls for change. We've seen tighter laws like background checks, but little more than that kind of political action. Why is the question? Governor John Kasich and David Axelrod are here. Gentlemen, thank you. Um, now, let's uh, go backwards. Axe, uh, you weren't in the White House for Sandy Hook, but you remember the situation. That was supposed to be the tipping point, right, to take Malcolm Gladwell's expression. That, that was so terrible. So many kids killed in a situation that should have been detected, that certainly there'd be change and nothing came. If anything, it hardened resolve on both sides. What was your takeaway? Well, I mean, it shows how intractable the uh, opposition is, how powerful, because, listen, the, the push that President Obama made at that time was for uh, universal background checks. Ninety percent of Americans say they approve of it, and yet it could not move 
through Congress. Mm. And that is that is how powerful uh, the the gun lobby is there. The issue is there. And, you know, we we have had seven of the of the uh, 10 worst uh, mass shootings in the last decade. Uh, You know, we have 46 percent of the world's guns. We have four percent of the Population and you know they're just statistic after statistic points to uh, tightening things up at least in terms of knowing who's getting guns and keeping them out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them and yet uh, the political will hasn't been there. Governor Kasich knows a lot about that uh, because he's experienced it in his own state. Right. Uh, and you know what worries me, Chris, just if I can make this last point, is just how numb we've become to it. These stories have become so common that, you, you know, you have you have to remind yourself just how dramatically wrong this is and how different it is than the experience in other mm. industrialized countries. Uh, we really we really need to act and we need to summon the political will to do it. So, Gov, the idea that politicians have a tendency to act out of fear of consequence more than simply out of just good conscience. You live this. In Ohio, you wanted a red flag law. You wanted to do sensible change, not to demonize the mentally ill, but to find ways with a certain show of proof where you could get guns taken away from someone who seemed in distress. Do I have it right? And what happened? Well, look, the problem is, is that you have a force that opposes any change in the law. And in order to counter them, you need to have the public. I mean, Mm. if I had been able to rally, rally 10,000 people on the lawn of the state house. I think I could have gotten it done. The problem is, is that the people who are for some sort of gun control are divided. They're not united and people haven't seen the reason to show up. And I can't explain to you why, because David's right. When 90% of the people support these universal background checks, why don't they happen? It's because those people who want no change are very loud in these people's districts and yet we don't hear enough from the public. Chris, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, look, change comes from the bottom up, not the top down. And if you don't get people who are demanding these kinds of changes in town hall meetings and meetings with these legislators, it won't happen because the people who oppose any change are the ones that have the loudest voice. They're consistent, they're loud, and they're effective. That doesn't mean we can't get these changes. When you think about Florida, Mm -hmm. that was a state that had the least chance to change the gun laws. But when the Parkland kids, and they are heroes, when the Parkland kids said enough is enough, they made it impossible for the politicians down there to look the other way. And they got dramatic change. The proof of it is after the Pulse nightclub shooting, you know, we were there and that was Terrible. And it was the first time that we had seen gays targeted, you know, not just kids in schools. This was a new demographic to attack acts. You know, Rick Scott had nothing to do with it. He was nowhere to be found on that one as governor. But then when he wanted to be elected in the Senate and you had the Parkland situation and they came down there with their parents. And as the governor alluded to, crowds of thousands saying we're watching, we're coming for you. If you don't do something on this, he changed. Is that the reality that you may say to a pollster, yeah, I'm in with a 90 percent. But if you don't vote on it, if you don't carp about it, you get nothing. 
That's that's totally the case. And I think one thing we've seen change is, you know, we saw a bunch of seats change hands in suburban areas uh, in uh, in the last midterm election. And this was one of the issues that I think impacted uh, on a number of those races. But I want to say something about Governor Scott. You know, uh, I did a, a, my Axe Files show with Cory Booker mm-hmm. uh, this week, and he introduced a very dramatic gun proposal, 14-point proposal this week. The first person out of the box to attack him uh, was Rick Scott, because I think he's trying to get well uh, with the gun activists in his own party for fear that he uh, strayed too far. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I think that within the within particularly the Republican Party and the Republican Party primary constellation, this is a voting issue for people in, in a way that the other side is not uh, organized. And, and I totally agree with Governor Kasich. I, 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 until people make this a voting issue, uh, politicians are going to respond to where they get the heat from. All right, let's leave it there. I just wanted people to hear from two men whom they respect that it's about them. You can't just blame it on the NRA. You can't just blame it on some magical problem within government. It's about what you say you want and what you act on if you don't get. Show up when you you feel strongly, Chris. Show up and make your voice heard. The people in this country are in charge. They just need to know it and use their voice. Gov, Axe, thank you both for doing this, especially at short notice. Appreciate it. Okay, so I often say to you, hey, you guys reward opposition. You reward the negativity. That's why we get more and more of it in our society. Not always, and I'm going to be part of the change that I want to see. It's nice to reward somebody for doing something she wasn't supposed to be able to do anymore. And it's in a level that matters probably more than politics in our culture. Tyra Banks has made a statement that's about as bold as any I've seen recently. She is back on the cover of Sports Illustrated 22 years after becoming the first African-American model to get her own solo cover. She's now the oldest model to be the cover of the issue. 45 years old. She's coming at it with a new perspective, tweeting, this is for everybody that's been told they're not good enough because of their body, their age, their everything. Hashtag Banks is here to tell you that you are friggin' fierce no matter what anybody says. D. Lemon, mm-hmm. I love this How story. One, full disclosure, big fan. Big I got fan. A, I got I'm not a, objective on this. I, I got but a surprise I love, for you. I love breaking the barrier. I've got a surprise for what you. What do you got? Okay, roll it, please. Look, everyone, see what that says? It says Tyra Banks. Tyra Banks is on the phone. Tyra, tell me about this cover. It's everything. What do you want me to say to Chris? Uh, you know what? I, want, I don't think Chris is ready. I don't know if Chris can handle that cover. <laughs> <laughs> Tyra, you look amazing. Were you nervous at all? Yeah. You know what? I was, I was a bit nervous because I was about 35 pounds heavier than the last cover I did 22 years ago. Um, and I, at first I was like, I'm going to diet. I'm going to get in shape. No. And then, yeah, and, and I lost seven pounds in one week. Like, I really know how to, like, eat healthy and lose weight. But then I went to my mama's house, Dawn, and the Cheetos were calling my name. <laughs> <laughs> you got look, you gotta do what you gotta do. Listen, I love you. Do me a favor and say, now let's get after it. Now let's get after it. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. That was Tyra Banks. Thank you very much. Ago. Look, I read the magazine for the articles, but I will say this <laughs> that I love 
that she is taking the image. Yeah. Uh, now, look, people will look at it and be like, look, 35 pounds. Maybe she is 35 pounds heavier, but it's in all the right places. She looks amazing she looks for her age. I love that she's redefining yeah. that you don't get to say what yeah. age is beautiful. You don't get to judge what body is beautiful. She's on the cover. It's a big statement. Other yeah. people have tried to do it, Don. Yeah. But I love that it's her. I love yeah. that it's the best of the past is now the best of the present. I, I love it, too, and I love people who are making a difference. And two of those people are going to be on my show. Jamel Hill, you know, former mm -hmm. ESPN correspondent anchor, now writes for The Atlantic, has her own radio show, very outspoken. And also Martellus Bennett, who wrote this, uh, this book. Uh, it says, Dear Black Boys, uh, we're going to discuss what happened at the White House today with the Red Sox and why some players went. The players of color did not go. And we're also going to talk about why conservatives keep touting African-American unemployment. And is that the right thing to do when they're trying to get the African-American vote? I love that. You know, that was bothersome uh, today because it was so obvious yeah. uh, that the divisions are being played upon yeah. and they're being made real. We're taking it up in the closing argument uh, about what happened at the president's rally and what he decided to just kind of wave away as if it meant nothing. Uh, I really believe that in the main, this country, as you know, is united on central values. Yeah. Uh, most people are center right, center left, not these fringe types that we give so much attention to and are so loud in their voice. Um, so but, angry. Yeah, yeah, very angry. And look, the media responds to it. The, yeah. the, 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 Marie, the, the media plays to amplitude yeah. uh, and to volume, sometimes uh, to our own you know, detriment. But you're going to have a very important conversation with them. And look, on the other side of the scale... It's great that Tyra's on the cover, and it's not a big deal because she's black. She already yeah. broke that barrier. She broke that barrier long It's that now ago. you don't get to define what's beautiful. That's yeah. for us to do, the people who want to look. And at 45, what a dream she still is. The loudest voices aren't great for Tyra. The loudest voices aren't always the majority. They're just the ones that make the most noise. That's true. We should keep that in mind. The president's poll numbers yeah. are proof of it. Yeah. I agree. Colin See you in Quinn. a little bit. Colin Quinn is going to talk to us about that, too. Colin Quinn will be on the show, comedian. Very strong. Got Tyra, nothing project. about you, you noticed. <laughs> I like that you have her number, though. Strong. Let's More reach than here. I expected. I'll see you. All right. <laughs> the president, just uh, as I was referring to D. Lemon there, he's down at his rally, and he got a big kick out of a joke that happened there. It was an ugly joke. Uh, it was a joke that shouldn't have been let go. Not everything is funny, even if it's meant in jest. It was said about migrants, and it was real, and it's the wrong time with where we are in this country. And it's worthy of an argument that I hope you pay attention to. Next. All right, the argument is two different bites at the same apple, which is we've got to remember what matters. A lie has been overlooked. I know you see and hear proof about this president lying too often. But the truth has to be called out for it to continue to matter. So you need to know this. This president is misleading you about aid to Puerto Rico. He's using a number of 91 billion, which is not what those Americans have received. It's what was allocated. Even in that, it's too generous a description because that 91 number includes 50, five zero billion for potential future disaster claims that may or may not happen. And then that additional money might go to them if warranted. You see what I'm saying? 11 billion is what they have actually received. It's just a fraction of what they need. And you have to remember the context. The president thought about a dozen people died there. Remember? And he was like, ooh, thank God it wasn't like Katrina. It's well over 2,000 people. Another fact this president has refused to own. And the reason they haven't gotten more money, 
like what they need seems to point to the spite of this president. Reportedly, he keeps saying not to give them any more money, and then he exaggerates what they did get. And that's deceptive, and it's wrong. Now, that's the true part. The sad part is that most of you are going to shrug, right? You'll say, this is what he does. He lies. How is this any different? And how is he any different than any of these other politicians? My argument is the more you forgive perfidy and a penchant for bad acts, the more you're going to get of them. And another reason to look at this is that a lack of integrity in one area, like lying, is often indicative of a deeper defect. Now, we saw that, too. And it, too, must be called out. And I argue it cannot be similarly waved away. And here it is. When you have two or three border security people that are brave and great. And don't forget, we don't let them and we can't let them use weapons. We can't. Other countries do. We can't. I would never do that. But how do you stop these people? You can't. There's no. (laughs) That's only in the panhandle you can get away with that statement. What are they cheering for? Some generous spirit out there in the crowd says, shoot them. That's how you stop the migrants. Now, let's assume the man wasn't serious. But that, that, just that suggestion, even in twisted jest, doesn't it scream out for something more from a president? All he could muster is only in the panhandle. Of course not. That's just all he wanted to say because he isn't bothered by the joke or maybe even the suggestion. And in truth, he didn't get away with it. He was all but congratulated for it. And I bet it would go over pretty well at many of the Trump rallies. And the proof of why is to look closer at what the president said. He offers up that we can't let the border security folks use their weapons. Why bring it up? Why bring it up if it's so disgusting an idea to you? And they are armed. They don't shoot these people because they're not confronted with threat and they see their job as primarily a humanitarian mission. If they deal with bad people, they deal with them accordingly. I've seen it. And if you're really worried about them being so outnumbered, why don't you provide more resources for them through your emergency declaration instead of just building a fence which doesn't help them with what they face right now? He says others shoot them, but I would never allow that. Why point to a bad example of a possibility? Why point to it as a possibility? The truth is he can't allow it. Not here. This is America. All right? Would you let the joke go by? Here's the test. If you found it offensive. No, right? The guy said, let's shoot your kids. God forbid. He'd say, don't say that. Don't even joke like that. That's not us. Why didn't he say this to this man? Don't joke like that. We're better than that. People who live in countries who do what you're talking about, those countries, their people run to us because we're decent. Even if they don't have a right to be here, even if they never get to stay, we treat them with decency because this is America, land of immigrants, of law, justice, respect for humanity. This president said none of that because it doesn't sell because he is in on the joke. But outside those rallies, People are not laughing with this president. The country is suffering through more school shootings and the madness of pointless violence. We all say we care. At a minimum, there's no need to joke about shooting anyone, especially not now. I argue to you that America has become great, not because of our differences, but our shared values. Don't forget what makes us uniquely great in this country. 
Thank you for listening to me tonight. There's a lot of news off this Jim Comey town hall. And D. Lemon has that on CNN tonight right now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.